0: Seeing what Jesus sees, this Palm Sunday and always. We want to see, with God's help, we want to see the things that Je- the Lord Jesus sees. And what did the Lord Jesus see on that first Palm Sunday? To understand that with me, go to the Gospel of Mark, please, chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. That's easy to remember. The Palm Sunday text today is Mark 11, 1 to 11, seeing what Jesus sees, Having pastored for 20 years in Canada, before pastoring in the United States and Pennsylvania, and then now here in the Bahamas, I have stepped into a pulpit in Canada for many years and inscribed in the wooden pulpit in letters and words that only I could read, the congregation never could read them. It said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And as I climbed into that pulpit every Sunday, I would look and it said, Sir we would see Jesus. And that would be my prayer this morning, that we would see Jesus. But specifically, that we today would see what Jesus saw, Palm Sunday, and what Jesus continues to see April second, 2023. Of course, the person who said, sir, we would see Jesus, was in a Palm Sunday crowd. It's a quote from John 12, verse 21, when persons in that crowd came to Philip and said, sir, we would see Jesus. They wanted to see Jesus because he had raised Lazarus from the dead shortly before that and it was a bit of a notoriety. They wanted to see this Jesus who raised this man named Lazarus from the dead. But I would like us today to see first what Jesus saw Palm Sunday so that we would understand what he still sees that it would encourage us to calmness amid chaos and love amid distraction. Love for Christ. There are two things that I want you to see in Mark 11, 1 to 11. Two things that the Lord Jesus saw. But before we get to the two sites he saw, I want to orient you to this particular paragraph. You will remember, I trust, that the action we're going to read about took place just east of Jerusalem on a road that descends into the Kidron Valley on the east side of the old city of Jerusalem When Jesus rode down that declining road into the Kidron Valley toward the city of Jerusalem, he was just to the east of the old city. The action took place on the Sunday before Good Friday. The action took place on the Sunday, one week in advance of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on Easter or Resurrection Lord's Day. And the action took place on a large scale. There were probably millions of persons in Jerusalem for Passover at that time. The city was jam-packed. There people, pilgrims there for many different reasons, many different ambitions, many different aspirations, many different purposes. But it was a busy place, a full city. And so now we can read the first six verses of Mark 11. Please hear the word of God. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has, has sat. Loose it and bring it and if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately He will send it here. So they went on their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. The first sight that Jesus sees is the future. Your Lord and Savior sees the future. And that particular day, the Lord Jesus looked ahead into the immediate future, and he told the disciples he dispatched to get the donkey, he told them that he saw the colt, that he saw the questioning bystanders, and he saw a certain conversation in advance that they would have with those who objected to them taking the cold. Jesus sees the future. (laughs) That ought to encourage you today. Jesus sees your future, and he sees the future, and Jesus sees your future better than 4K TV, vividly. And of course, Jesus sees the future because he's God. He's eternal. Without a beginning and without an ending, he's over time. And in his humanity and incarnation, he came into time. But Jesus Christ sees the future. Now, the fact that he said that he doesn't know the timing of his return coming, that's because he temporarily laid aside the use of his divine attribute of omniscience. But Jesus sees the future. He saw the future in this situation he saw the cult, he saw the objectors, he saw the conversation, he saw the outcome, he saw that there would be a cult brought to him for Good Friday. Now, being creatures of time and being creatures sometimes of flagging faith, we can doubt, we can worry, and we can fear about things. And in a crowd this size, some of you have come to worship the Lord Jesus this Palm Sunday with certain worries. Maybe you're worried about this country's future or our church's future. Maybe you're concerned about your children or your grandchildren's futures. And maybe, if the truth be told, you're worried about your own future. How will your advanced years of age be? How will your health hold up? How is your marriage going to do? Will it stand the test of time? Well, you have money to meet your expenses if you should lose your job. Some of us come uncertain about our future. And so the great news is that on Palm Sunday, Jesus saw the future. And this morning, Jesus sees each of our individual futures as well. He's got it. He's not at the Father's right hand reacting as if he's a reactive savior. He's the proactive savior who sees the future. And that ought to be a great, great comfort to us who are prone to worry. Because Jesus Christ exists outside of time at the Father's right hand, because He made time, because He sees all the details of past time, present time, and future time, because He sees all of it equally vividly, we don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. We don't have to get discouraged. It's a great comfort to realize that your Savior sees your future, because that means he can guide you into his will for your future. That means that he can guide you into his will for your future, but that also means he can guide you through his will to the other side of your future to get you safely home, to be with him forever. Heaven is a prepared place, as you know, but only for prepared people and if you know christ as your lord and savior you're prepared and he's going to see you through the valley of the shadow of death he's going to see you through to his eternal future bought for you on calvary that's encouraging nothing takes him by surprise nothing and this is what he said to those two disciples he dispatched to get the donkey the first palm sunday he very accurately saw their immediate futures. He saw the village. <clears throat> he saw the colt. He saw the questioning bystander. He saw the permission granted. He saw the colt coming back to him so that he could ride on it. Saw it all. And so again, I ask you, what part of your future is worrying, worrisome to you? What is keeping you from falling asleep quickly at nights? What wakes you up in the night that you're very concerned about? What is it? Whatever it is, your Savior sees the future, controls the future, makes provision for your future, and is with you every step of your way into your future. Some people here, worshiping the Lord, my brothers and my sisters, you're worried about your singleness, or you're worried about your health, or you're worried about your marriage. You're worried about your children, or you're worried about your money. You're worried about your employment or you're worried about your retirement. You're worried about our country. You're worried about your world. You're worried about your death. How will I die? When will I die? Whatever your worry would be, cast all your care upon the Lord because he cares for you and he knows your particular future. He sees all the details of your future with respect to all your personal concerns. And so you can walk confidently and calmly into your future, assured that the Lord Jesus sees it, and he's got it, and he's got you. And he walks into your future, any segment of your future, any installment of your future, any episode of your future Jesus Christ walks into those snapshots of your future ahead of you. He's first. You will never enter a situation that Jesus Christ isn't first within. You know, cowboys drive their cattle from the back of the herd with a horse. Shepherds lead their flock. They go ahead of their sheep. The good shepherd Jesus Christ is ahead of you in every eventuality of your future. He's before you. He's in every situation you'll face today, this week, and every day until you go home to be with him. That is great news. That is calming news. That ought to calm us right down. That's the first sight. Jesus saw the first Palm Sunday, he saw the future. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Lord Jesus Christ sees your future and everything that concerns you about your future. That's great news. The second sight that the Lord Jesus saw on the Palm Sunday original was he saw the fanfare. The Lord Jesus just did not simply see the future as great as that was. Jesus Christ saw the fanfare. What do I mean by that? Verses 7 to 11. Then. They, the two disciples who went to the village, then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's what they cried. The little kids cried it. The senior citizens cried it. The middle-aged people cried it. The healthy people cried it. The sick people cried it. The confused people cried it. The insightful people cried it. That's what they cried. Hosanna, save now. There's plenty of fanfare the first Palm Sunday. In fact, the Jews in Jerusalem for Passover were abuzz over the Lord Jesus Christ having raised Lazarus from the dead. The word got out on the streets. This Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, who had been feeding people with a sack lunch, a boy's sack lunch, who had been healing the sick, had raised a dead man. The word was out. And so the city already a buzz for Passover was at a heightened level of excitement and fanfare because this Jesus who had raised Lazarus empirically from the dead was at hand. What would he say next? What would he do next? The crowd was swelling and it was quite a scene I'm sure. It was loud, it was cramped, it was thrill-seeking, it was excited, it was family-friendly, the children were there. It was a happy time. It was a booming economy time. People had to live somewhere when they visited Jerusalem for Passover. People had to buy sacrificial birds and animals to sacrifice. The economy was booming. It was an optimistic time. Lots of travelers in town, we know about the tourism industry in this country, It was a patriotic time. These lovely palm branches that they waved were a national symbol of Israel. Now that we have the Star of David on the Israeli flag, but back then, the palm frond was a national sign of patriotism and nationalism. And so they waved the palm branches at the Lord Jesus. Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they put these palm branches on the cobblestone roadway that descends into the Kidron Valley on the east side of Jerusalem. My wife and I have been there. And we imagined those palm branches being spread as a carpet below the Lord Jesus' donkey as he rode down that incline into the Kidron Valley toward the eastern gate of the old city of Jerusalem to present himself as the nation's king. What a parade. It was a parade, I submit to you, That was like none other they had ever seen. They may have seen parades before this one, but this one was utterly, eye poppingly, surprisingly unique. Why? Well, the parade had an unassuming rider, according to verse 7. The parade route had an unexpected carpet. I just told you about it. It was palm branches, verse 8. The parade had caused unsustained adoration. I say it was unsustained because the same people who on Palm Sunday cried out, Hosanna, save now! Days later, mere days later, the same folks, crucify him! Crucify him! What a parade. It was a parade that caused unsustained worship. But there's more. What a unique parade. It was a parade that had an ominous next door neighbor. When you go to that roadway on the east side of the old city of Jerusalem, the cobblestone roadway, slight gentle decline into the Kidron Valley, on the left is the largest Jewish cemetery in the world. It was there when Jesus came into Jerusalem on the donkey the first Palm Sunday, and it's still there now. It's the largest Jewish cemetery in the world. So as our Savior rode the donkey, surely he must have occasionally glanced to the left as a precursor, as a foreshadowing, of a riveting of his purposeful, resolute obedience, death. They were crying with glee and excitement and pride and nationalism and asking for military and political deliverance and salvation. And Jesus, knowing all things, only had to turn his head a slight turn and see the world's largest Jewish cemetery. Well, this parade was like no other. It had an unassuming rider, verse 7. It had an unexpected carpet, verse 8. It had an unsustained adoration, verses 9 and 10. It had an ominous next-door neighbor. And the parade ended with an unspoken inspection. Jesus Christ made an unspoken inspection, and that's what wrapped it up. That's what called it a day. That's what told everybody, go home. An unexpected inspection. There was the fanfare, there was the hoopla, there was the religious and political fuss, there was the hubbub. And if you know what guys, if there (laughs) if there had been cell phones, there would have been millions of selfies being taken on that parade route. It was a day. And Jesus saw the fanfare. And Jesus was not impressed. He didn't think he'd somehow arrived. He didn't tell his disciples, this is what I've been shooting for the whole time, fellas. Jesus saw the fanfare, and he was not impressed. And Jesus today still sees some religious fanfare, and is equally unimpressed today. Why is Jesus unimpressed with fanfare today? Why was Jesus unimpressed? untouched and unimpressed by the fanfare of that first Palm Sunday because Jesus knows that when it comes to fanfare that all that's loud isn't lasting and all that's commotion isn't consecrated and all that's wanted isn't wonderful and all that's exciting isn't eternal and all that's hubbub isn't heartfelt. And so to sum it up, the Savior knew back then and knows today that fanfare isn't saving faith. Fanfare isn't equal to saving faith. Jesus knew it back then, and Jesus still knows it this morning. All that is fanfare isn't necessarily saving faith in Christ. And it's quite surprising, really, that the end of this unique parade of all parades, the first Palm Sunday parade, it's quite surprising what Jesus did. Well, let me tell you what Jesus didn't do at the end of the parade. He didn't sign autographs, he didn't make a speech Crown me king. Didn't happen. Jesus didn't flatter his followers. Jesus didn't give a teaching. Jesus didn't perform a miracle. No, to end this parade of all parades, Jesus didn't ride the colt to wherever he was going next. No. Seeing and being unimpressed with the fanfare, the Lord Jesus Christ did none of that. None of it. What he did, he, was, he quietly dismounted the donkey, and he quietly walked through the Kidron Valley. He quietly walked to the Temple Mount, and he carefully and silently surveyed everything. He took a spiritual inventory of the nation. He knew where to go. He knew where to measure the spiritual temperature of Israel. He went straight to the Temple Mount to see the heartbeat of the nation at that hour. It would be on display there at the temple, and he wanted to see what it was. Jesus didn't want or need to see any more of the parade adulation. Instead, he wanted to see average Jewish person piety to his heavenly father. Piety is a fancy word that he wanted to see genuine reverence for God. He wanted to see genuine public and private devotion to God. He wanted to see genuine obedience to God's commandments. He wanted to see genuine hearts in love with God. That's what he was looking for. When he got off the colt, walked through the valley, went to the Temple Mount and surveyed everything, all of it, that's what he was looking for verse 11 is a tremendously sad verse. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, if I marked my bible, I would underline all things. He he had looked around all things. As the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Sad verse. The verse reports that our Lord looked around at all things, nothing escaped his attention. He looked around at all things on that temple mount that day. He looked at things external, he looked at things internal, he he looked at things said, he looked at things that were not said, he looked at things individual, he looked at things collective, he looked at the small things, he looked at the big things, he saw it all. And the sad thing is that having looked all around the temple that day, and at all of the things that comprised what was going on, our Lord had nothing to say. Silent. Nothing. Nothing to say. He inspected their hubbub. He looked over their hearts as they were in the temple courts. And what did he do? He exited. He didn't exclaim. He exited. Tragic. After three and a half years of his public ministry, of teaching the need to be born again, the need to see him as the fulfillment of the law, the need to value what the Father values and be angry over what the father's angry about. After all of his teaching, all of his miracles, three and a half years was not done in the dark. It was not done in a little closet. It was done in the open for the nation to see and observe and to hear and to experience. After three and a half years of public ministry, it came down to that. Off the donkey, through the valley, into the temple mount, and he sees nothing to commend. Nothing to thank his father for. Silent, and in silence, he turned, left the Temple Mount, left the parade route. Silent. It's indicting. That's declaring guilt. That's saying and seeing that people who had ears weren't hearing, people who had hearts weren't melting. People who had lives weren't repenting. People who had sacrifices weren't really too concerned about their sin. And eternities were before him. Eternities without believing in him. I mean, the palm branches were one thing, But prescribed sacrifices and attendant repentance for sin were quite another thing. And fanfare was one thing. But no repentance for sins was quite another thing. Tragic. And so the first Palm Sunday was a two-faced day. Back then and now today, Jesus sees the future. And Jesus sees the fanfare, but the fanfare doesn't impress Jesus. Actually, he walked away from it. He preferred solitude with his Father in heaven in prayer. I wonder where would Jesus Christ go to gauge the health, the spiritual health of the Bahamas? Where would Jesus go? He went to the Temple Mount to gauge the spiritual health of Israel, where would Christ go now in our country to gauge our spiritual health as Bahamians? Our courthouses? Our streets? Our numbers houses? No. The Lord Jesus, were he to gauge the spiritual temperature of the Bahamas, would go to our churches. As he did in book of Revelation chapters two and three, seven churches the risen Christ visited took spiritual temperature of seven literal ancient churches in the Mediterranean basin. Two of the seven were commended. Five of the seven churches were indicted. You'll recall from Revelation chapters two and three, there was a loveless church, there was a compromising church, there was a corrupt church, there was a dead church, and there was a lukewarm church. Should the Lord Jesus Christ want to go spatially to a GPS point to judge the spiritual vitality of our country, he would go to our churches. And he would find... That some of the churches here are loveless. Some are compromising. He would find that some are corrupt. He would find that some are dead. And he would find that the majority, in my opinion, are lukewarm. How's Calvary Bible? Let's get more personal. Where would the Lord Jesus go? Today, to diagnose your particular spiritual temperatures. Your homes, your kitchen tables with your kids still around them, your Bibles, your prayer lists, where would Jesus go? Your TVs, your PCs, where would Jesus go to gauge your spiritual health? To your cell phone? to your tongue, to your checkbook, to your minds. Jesus Christ is not impressed with fanfare. He wants love. Jesus Christ wants our love. When asked by a lawyer, the greatest commandment of them all, you know what he said, you shall love the Lord your God, That was him saying you love me because I'm God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The Lord Jesus, hear me, the Lord Jesus doesn't want all your fanfare, your show, your talk, your hype, or your religious busyness. He wants your love. Jesus Christ, imagine, creator God, world's only savior, king of kings, Lord of lords, he wants my love. He wants each of your love who know him by faith. Imagine, he wants all of our love. He wants our best love, and he's deserving. (laughs) He's deserving of our best love, is he not? Two sites Jesus saw the first Palm Sunday. He continues to see both today. He sees the future. It ought to calm us down. And he sees the fanfare. It ought to center us on improving the quality of our love relationship with him. Put another way, if you're afraid of your future, you have a head problem. You're worrying your head needs a different focus on the sovereignty of God. If you're not centered and loving and putting Jesus Christ first, you have a heart problem. You're wandering. Your heart needs a flesh. You need to get rid of idols. And you need to love Christ the most. D.L. Moody knew that God (laughs) knew his future. So he was calm. D.L. Moody did not worry. He walked away from being a very successful salesman. Those he told that he was walking away from the business world to go into the ministry world said that his decision was, quote, a wild undertaking, end quote. Moody walked away from his goal of making $100,000 in his working lifetime. That was his ambition as a businessman. He walked away from that. And he walked away from the $5,000 worth of monies he had saved at the point of his conversion. $5,000 back in the mid-18th or mid-19th century was enough to buy two and a half new homes Moody had set aside enough money, $5,000, that he could have built two brand new homes and a half of another brand new home with the money he'd saved. Do you know what he did with the savings when he met Christ and loved Christ first and not money? He spent all that $5,000 on reaching children and adults for Christ. Spent it all. Moody chose to live in a cheap apartment And sometimes he slept outdoors. He ate cheese and crackers most of his redeemed life to survive. And he accepted criticism for bringing undesirable children into his Sunday school. Moody went into the bars in the worst parts of Chicago and found the most wayward teenagers and children and invited them and brought them to Sunday school. And he was scandalous. Scandalous to these stuffy, pious, proud, uncaring, uncompassionate clergymen in Chicago. They said he was a joke. He withstood their criticism because he was about the Lord Jesus' work, and he loved the Lord Jesus more than he did about clergy peer praise. <laughs> he would pay the kids to come to Sunday school. he paid them money. He bribed them. He said, sure, I bribed them. I brought them to Sunday school so they could meet the Savior. How are you bringing them to Sunday school? Unconventional means to the only solution for sin that any of those children would ever hear in their whole lifetimes. Moody. L. Moody, who founded three schools preached internationally to thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, he could barely read or write. When he came to a word and a text that he had memorized and he didn't know how to pronounce it, he'd sometimes just go back and go over the word because his reading was poor. That didn't stop him because his love for Jesus Christ was greater than his fear of being poor reader. Moody wasn't worried man. He was calm because he knew that the Lord Jesus knew his future. And Christ is sovereign had control of Moody's future. He wasn't a worried man. And D.L. Moody was something else. He was centered, driven, focused on his love surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Dwight L. Moody loved Christ most, and he put Christ first. And he did away with the idols he brought into his conversion experience and into his baby Christian life. He did away with the idols. He did away with a career. He wanted to have $100,000 earned in a lifetime. He did away with that. He did away with the idol of amassing wealth. He did away with the idol of having a nice place to live that was comfortable Sometimes he slept outdoors. He did away with the idol of having an interesting and a varied diet that he could have afforded before he went into Christian ministry and ate crackers and cheese most of the rest of the way. He did away with the idol of what people thought of him, his reputation. And he did it all because he loved Jesus most. And loving Jesus most, Moody's life was not about fanfare, it was about service, about the gospel. about the children needing Christ. Who do you love the most? Would there be idols? Would there be things to get rid of? Dwight L. Moody didn't wander away from Christ's lordship over his life He stayed most in love with Jesus Christ until unexpectedly Dale Moody died at age of 62 years old. At the time, in his fledging, redeemed life blossoming, there was a time in Moody's life when he was wrestling over surrendering his career and his money to be a Christian worker, and an Englishman spoke to him named Henry Varley And Varley told Moody something that centered and burned into Moody's mind and heart that he never lost sight of, he never forgot. Varley told Moody this, and I quote, we have yet to see what God can do through a man who is totally yielded to him. Ladies, it's equally true. We have yet to see what God can do through a woman who was totally yielded to him. Moody was in Europe when Varley told him that, and he said on the boat ride back from Europe to America, he could not get that quote out of his mind. We have yet to see what God can do through a man who is totally yielded to him. And on that boat, before he arrived back in America, Moody fell to his knees and said to God, God, I would be that man. And he was. How about me? I asked myself, how about me? How about you? Could you ask yourself, how about me? Would I dare, because I know Christ knows my future and because I know Christ wants my love, would I dare be that man or that woman who is totally yielded to him? Some of you may have made that decision earlier in your redeemed lives. Wonderful. Does it need to be ratified? The thing about living sacrifices in Romans 12.1 is they crawl off the altar periodically. Have you crawled off the altar? Or are you still on that altar of Romans 12.1 I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Are you on the altar? You can be. Let's pray. Palm Sunday... Jesus sees the future, we would be calm in that. Jesus sees the fanfare, we would center and improve our love relationship with him. Lord, may each of us who know Christ, whether young or old, purpose with your help and by your grace and for your glory to be the person who is fully yielded to God and to see what you would do through the likes of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.